Last week, uh, we continued the discussion that we were having about our emotions and how to recognize them and understand them and deal with them in a biblical way. And we started last week discussing two very interesting ones, guilt and shame. And um, I want to finish up our discussion this week by, by moving from just how to understand these emotions to begin talking about what to do about them or some very practical steps to deal with them, not only in ourselves but in other people as well. And um, as we celebrate Mother's Day today, um, one of the things that really occurred to me as I was preparing uh, this week was that one of the reasons that we have to honor our moms, and, and we really should, is that probably every mother at some point along the line has to deal with a different kind of, of guilt and shame. Uh, there, are, there are many, many moms out there today uh, who are, for instance, working outside the home, and they really wish they could be spending more time with their kids, and because they can't, they feel guilty about the fact that their kids are missing out on some mom time that they could be having. Now, I realize it's true that some parents, not just moms, but moms and dads, do prioritize career over kids to the detriment of their children, but, but, and, and this is not an excuse for that, but in, in most cases, the guilt that these moms feel that they can't be with their kids as much as they want is really a misplaced guilt in the sense that they are really doing everything they can given the circumstances to bring up their kids in the best way possible. And uh, these moms need to be honored. They need to know, kids and husbands, that you see their sacrifice, that, that you see maybe the conflict that is going on inside them sometimes and even some of the pain that they have because of it. And you appreciate what they do to love their children in every possible way, even when circumstances aren't ideal and they don't have as much time as they would like to spend with their children. On the other hand, there are some moms who are able to stay home with their kids, and they choose to do so, and by doing this, they give up the chance at a rewarding career outside the home. And society does not always understand this. In fact, they very rarely do anymore. How shameful for a woman with such talent, such promise, maybe an advanced degree of some kind, to, to waste all of that to stay home with children. Or maybe you just work part-time to spend more time with them. You know, a mom may or may not be feeling this shame. She may not feel this way. She may be very proud of her decision, but she still needs to be honored today and at other times as well for the woman that she is and for the choice that she has made. So if you realize how much of a hero your mom is today, either way, you need to honor her. It hasn't been easy. Honor, we're going to find out a little bit later on, is a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful tool in our arsenal for healing one another and for being there for one another. Now, as was the case last week, I want to talk about both guilt and shame, but I want to go uh, fairly quickly with guilt <laughs> and then move on to shame, and, and really for the same reason. I think we, we're pretty familiar about how to deal with guilt. We're pretty familiar with it, and, and we, we talk about it a lot. Uh, one of the best passages, let me just give you this tool, though, if you haven't discovered it, one of the greatest passages in the Bible for understanding how to deal with guilt is one of the Psalms that David wrote. It's Psalm 32. Psalm number 32. Uh, you can turn there if you want, but I'm actually going to project the first few verses on the board in a second. But David writes this psalm after coming to terms with a particular sin in his life, 
Uh, it may have been the big one that he committed with adultery and murder with Bathsheba and, and Uriah the Hittite, but it might have been something else. We don't know. But whatever the situation was in David's life when he wrote this psalm, it has become a model for the people of God in dealing with their sin and guilt. Let me just go ahead and read you the first five verses, and I'm going to put them up on the screen so you can see them as well. David says this, blessed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Some of your translations say, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is so beautiful. It is so simple. It is so straightforward. When, as Christians, we have sin in our life that has not been dealt with, David describes here how it eventually becomes a great burden. It becomes a weight. And he says, just like on a hot summer day, we move more slowly. We feel a certain heaviness in our bones. We have less strength and energy So, in the same way, spiritually, this unconfessed sin, when we hide it from God and others, when we rationalize it, when we explain it away, maybe because of shame, maybe because of just plain rebellion, we just want to do our own thing, but when we do this, our spiritual vitality is depleted, like trying to walk around on a hot summer day when it's 100 degrees outside. When we hide from God, our prayers are weak and distant. Our relationships with other people are strained. We might get cranky and irritable. Our feeling of well-being has disappeared. But then we come to terms with our sin. We admit it. Not just in general, but specifically. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I'm going to confess my transgressions to the Lord. He says, sometimes, sometimes this takes some thought. Sometimes it takes some time. Sometimes it takes some prayer, some kind of processing before God. What is it in your heart that caused you to act like that? What is it in your heart that caused you to say those things or, or, or to maybe fail to act when you should have acted? Was it fear? Was it pride? Was it lust? Was it, was it anger that hadn't been dealt with? What was, what's going on in your life and your heart that you need to bring before God? Flush it all out in the presence of of your heavenly Father. Call it what it is and then turn it over to Him knowing that Jesus has taken that sin to the cross and that your sin is covered in His blood and your guilt is atoned for. And the freedom, the freedom that comes with that very simple transparency and honesty before God and sometimes God will prompt you to share it with another believer as well but that freedom is what David is referring to here in verse 1 at the beginning he says blessed it's what a blessing it is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered not the one who doesn't pretends that he doesn't have any sin or thinks that he doesn't have any sin blessed is the one whose sin is covered whose transgressions have been paid for atoned for The weight has been lifted, and the stiflingly hot summer sun gives way to the cool breeze of a summer evening, and you feel like you can live again, and you can love again, and you can serve again, and you can move again, because you're free. That's how to get rid of guilt. Let's move on now, because we mentioned last week that while the emotion of guilt, the emotion of guilt comes from the conviction, the, the understanding, the knowledge that you have done something 
sinful. The emotion of shame is different. The emotion of shame comes from the knowledge that you have been lowered in the eyes of someone whose opinion is important to you. You have been lowered in the eyes of someone whose opinion matters to you, and that someone may be a single person, or it may be your whole neighborhood, might be your whole classroom, might be your whole workplace, might be your whole family. And that lowering may be the result of just some minor embarrassment. There are so many different degrees of shame. And maybe you just embarrassed because, you know, you walked into the room with your fly down or, you're, you know, you had something stuck between your teeth or whatever. That, that's a little bit of shame, okay? But then there's the really intense kind that comes from more severe things. We also discovered that shame is not automatically a bad thing that often it's a necessary thing. Sometimes we need to feel shame. It can be like a warning light indicating to us that things are not exactly right in our relationships. On the other hand, we also saw that shame is extremely potent. Extremely. It can be very damaging to, as we say today, shame somebody. And an ongoing feeling of shame in somebody's life and heart, if it's not dealt with, can just crush a person's spirit. We also noted last week that while the way out of guilt, the way out of our guilt is to follow this well-defined path of confession and repentance and receiving forgiveness and going on from there, the way to get out of shame is a lot more problematic because the opposite of shame is not shamelessness, which is basically trying to get rid of the emotion. The way out of shame is also not high self-esteem, just kind of manufacturing a good opinion of yourself. No, the opposite of shame is honor. Honor, the lifting up of a person in the eyes of others. Honor, the lifting up of a person in the eyes of others whose opinion is important to him or her. And honor can only be given by someone else. You cannot do it for yourself. But just as shame is very powerful, so is honor. I can remember one time back at, um, at my last church in Virginia, I learned something about this. I went to sit in on an elementary school-aged Sunday school class one, one Sunday morning, and it was being taught by my friend Doug. Uh, Doug was a longtime public school teacher in Fairfax County, and he had recently become a principal, and I, I knew some of the kids in his class. And I knew, um, I can't remember if my kids were in the class or not, but I knew some of these kids had the potential in some cases to be uh, very badly behaved. But in Doug's classroom, they were absolute angels. And it was like magic. Only it wasn't magic, it was something else. Because I'm sitting in there and I'm watching some of these kids start to act up and I'm thinking, you know what I'd be doing? I'd be like, quiet, you hooligans. You know, why why can't you kids behave? Go, you sit in the corner. You know, that's what what it would have been like eventually. Instead, Doug would say this, without raising his voice one time. Wow, Sarah, that's excellent, the way that you're sitting up and paying attention. Thank you so much. And Jason, you've got your Bible open already. That's great. You're being a really good example for us. Thank you so much. And then I watched these other kids try to do the same stuff. And the desire for honor, the desire to be lifted up like this in front of their peers was so powerful. And I'm not an elementary school teacher, so teachers, I don't know if this works all the time, okay? But it worked in that class. Even with the kids that perhaps had already earned a bit of a reputation for causing trouble, and as a result, maybe we're used to being shamed. How do we confer honor upon others so as to deliver them from shame? And how does God do that for us? What does it look like? I want to take the rest of our time today, and what I want to do is just look at two examples from the Bible. 
The first one has to do with God and us, and it's found in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 that we started looking at uh, last week. You can turn there if you want. We're not going to read the, the whole, the whole uh, parable again. I'm just going to refer to it. The second example is a very, very practical, down-to-earth, nuts-and-bolts one about how to honor somebody who is caught in shame, and it comes from the life of Jesus. So first, let's go back to, to Luke 15. Let me give you a quick review of this parable that Jesus tells about this prodigal son, as we call him today. He is the younger of two sons. He is living in his father's household. It it is possible that he is chafing under the authority of his dad. We're not sure exactly what's going on because Jesus doesn't tell us. But for whatever reason, this son decides he's going to ask for his share of the father's inheritance. And then very quickly, when he gets the money, he runs off to a distant land. He turns his back on his family and he begins to live a very reckless and sinful life. But after he squanders all of this money, and a famine comes to the land that he's run off to, he finds himself feeding pigs, which is about the most shameful occupation there was for a young Jewish man. And in his state of near starvation, he comes to his senses, and he decides that he's going to try to return to his father's house, only he is filled with shame. He looks at who he is and he says, I can't go back there, not like this. And he realizes that his sin has made him unworthy to be called even a member of the family. And so he has a plan. He kind of rehearses it. And he says, I'm going to say to my father, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, I am unworthy to be called your son. Please just take me on as one of your hired servants, please. But as the prodigal son approaches his old house, what should he encounter but his father himself running to greet him. Now running, think about it, even in our culture, running, unless you're playing a sport or something like that, running brings on some degree of shame. It does. A person who is running through the hall or running for the bus or running through a crowd is a person who likely has messed something up, right? Sometimes I get things messed up on a Sunday morning and I've got to run back and forth between places and everybody's watching the goofy pastor run back and thinking, I'm a little bit ashamed right now. I should have had my stuff together. Why am I running? You know? This person's late. He forgot something. He didn't plan. He certainly does not have it all together. Running is a sign of goofiness. It implies a certain level of desperation too. So it's a teeny bit shameful. It's not real bad, but you don't want to be caught running all the time. It's, it's just, you know, don't be a loser. Don't run. But in the Middle Eastern culture that Jesus lived in, running was much more shameful, especially for an authority figure or someone with some dignity. It was extremely undignified to run. And you can imagine what a typical father would do if he maybe found out that this prodigal son was coming back. You know, maybe one of the servants sees the the kid or the, the young man coming from a long way away and says, hey, isn't that your son, your second son, the one that ran off and has been involved in all this stuff? And if you're the father, you know, I can see the father maybe slowly walking out toward the porch, his hands behind him like this. You know, this kind of I told you so look on his face, just waiting for his son to make up the rest of the ground so he can have a little talk with the boy, right? Not this guy. This dad is running. And given the clothing they wore at the time, this would mean he would have to gather up his robe almost like a big diaper and hold it in place while he ran out to his son like this. That's about as undignified as you can possibly get. I wonder what the servants thought as the master went running by like this. Not only does this man sacrifice his dignity by running, but he makes some very interesting decisions here. As the son tries to get through this little prepared speech about not being worthy and wanting to be hired on as a servant, the dad totally ignores him. He says, hey, get him some shoes. 
Get him a nice robe. Put a ring on his finger. We're going to have a party in his honor. Kill the fattened calf. My son, and he calls him that immediately, my son was lost. And now he's back. He's been found. He gives up dignity by running out there to meet his son. He really kind of gives up dignity by by making some decisions and saying some things that maybe would call people to question his better judgment and maybe even his sanity. But Jesus is illustrating here one of the main principles for bringing honor to a person who is suffering from shame, and that's this. To do this, to bring honor to a person that is suffering from shame, you almost always have to give up some of your own honor. To spend, as it were, some of your own social capital or social resources. The father loved his son enough to give up, really, some of his own dignity, to risk his own reputation, and take some level of dishonor upon himself in order to pull his son up out of shame. And of course, do you know who the Father in this parable represents? God the Father, who has done the same thing for us. Think for a moment about the big picture, okay? God created us, human beings, all of us, in His image. He created us in His image. He invested something in us that He had not invested in anything else in all of His creation, his own image. He, he blessed us. He honored us by giving us dominion over this whole big, beautiful, awesome world that he made. He dignified us by giving us the responsibility to fill the earth and to tend to his whole creation. And what did we do? That wasn't enough for us. We decided that instead we wanted to be our own gods, define our own existence, chart our own course, independent of our creator. And when we sinned, we became the object of shame. Now, you already saw that with Adam and Eve in the garden. We talked about that last week on an individual level, how they realized that they, had, they were naked and they hid themselves from God because of their shame. But think about it on the corporate level. Think about it on the cosmic level. What must the angels have thought about the new race of human beings that God had just created? Look what stupid creatures these are. Really? Look what they've thrown away. Look what God gave them. What a, look what they've become. How disgusting. How shameful. How shocked the angels must have been to see that God didn't give up on us. Not only that, but he lowered himself to an unimaginable extent in order to bring us up from our shameful condition. How stunned Satan must have been when God lowered himself to actually become one of us. To walk around in our sinful, broken, contaminated world, and to experience in his own self all of the effects of our betrayal. What kind of a God loves like this? What kind of a God lowers himself and humbles himself like this? But that's not all. Not only did God become one of us, God the Son agreed to die the death of a criminal in our place with all the shame, with all the abuse, with all the ridicule that entailed all to accomplish our forgiveness. But that isn't all. God didn't stop there. He actually adopted us into his own family. Oh, but that isn't all. God didn't stop there. To go even further, Ephesians says that God has seated us at his right hand in the heavenly realm. It is one thing to forgive someone who has fallen into shame. It is quite another to say, hey, come join my family and come sit in the most honored place in the whole universe. And yes, God humbled himself to do this. 
just like the father in the story. In some ways, through Jesus, he gave up some of his own dignity, but paradoxically, by doing this, God also displayed his glory, and that's why all the creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth are singing what they're singing, what we sang today in Revelation chapter 5. As the angels of heaven initially didn't understand, but eventually they're just standing there with their mouths hanging open when they see the extent to which God would go to redeem us. And you know what? That isn't the case for just humanity in general. That is the case. It is what God does for every single person who trusts in Him through Jesus Christ. No matter how low a position you are starting from, God honors you in that way. And we might say to God, like the prodigal son said to his dad, we might say, what is, we're not worthy to be for that. We're not worthy to be called your children. And that may be so, but you know what? I think it's up to God to make that decision. The I am who you say I am thing, right? And God has chosen to falsify that statement of ours saying we're not worthy by loving us into worthiness. And by honoring us as his own children. God did not love us or save us because we were worthy. Please do not get the cart before the horse. It is the reverse. All of our worthiness comes from what God has done for us, loving us and saving us at infinite cost through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the cosmic side of things. That's what God did for human beings and for each one of you here today who has placed your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, I hope you do that today. What an honor. But God also gives us the privilege of loving one another and of serving one another and helping one another in difficult times. And that includes the opportunity to honor one another. In fact, it says in the New Testament we should honor one another above ourselves. And also the chance to bring other people out of shame when they can't do it themselves, which they can't. You will come across people in your life, and you no doubt already have, who need to be lifted up out of shame. It may be the result of something they brought upon themselves through some kind of sin or disobedience. It might just be bad, not very smart decisions. It might be something in their family. It might be something, it might be something that they haven't done, that they, they don't deserve this at all. They might just be poor. They might be made fun of by classmates. They might be unpopular with their coworkers. They might be ignored because of a difference of skin color or a disability or something else. But whatever it is, they're lower in social status because of something and they need to be lifted up. How do you lift them up? Turn, if you will, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm going to read you the story of the um, lady who has become known as the woman at the well. You meet her in heaven one day. She probably has a name, so don't just call her, hey, woman at the well, but that's, that's who she is, apparently. <clears throat> but as we read this, I, I want you to make special note of three things, okay? I want you to note where she is at the beginning of the story and how she's acting. I want you to notice where she is at the end of the story and how she's acting, and then I want you to notice what Jesus does to help her get there, and we'll look at those things, because this is a perfect example of what it means to restore someone's honor. All right, so let's start in verse... Uh, So Jesus is in Samaria. It says, He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, so it's about noon. Verse 7, A woman from Samaria came came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the only place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Stop there. Okay. So what a journey, huh? Starting in verse 6, Jesus is hanging out in the middle of Samaria. He's going through Samaria with his disciples. He's exhausted. He sits down by this well. And along comes this woman to draw water in the heat of the day. This is not when people normally draw water in the heat of the day, because this is pretty hard work. This is the time of day that people come to draw water when they don't feel like running into other people. This woman has had five failed marriages. She's currently living with a man who's not her husband, apparently. There is no way that she doesn't have a bad reputation in this town, and so she's ashamed. She's going to come all the way here to draw water by herself in the middle of the day when there's no help instead of dealing with all the townspeople. That's where she starts this chapter. She's ashamed. Now, some of the shame she may have earned, uh, but a lot of it probably comes from others, too. My guess is that her reputation has suffered a lot more from these divorces than that of her exes. But if you go over to verses 28 and 29, at the end, see where she ends up. This woman, when she finds out at the end who Jesus is, she does not hesitate to bring the news to everybody, to the rest of the people in town, even though, yes, she becomes an evangelist, even though she still is a woman with the past, and they all know what she's done. I have never been surprised in reading this story that this woman wants to share about Jesus because a lot of people that find out about Jesus are excited and want to share about him. What what really amazes me every time I read this story is the woman's social courage. 
in doing this when she, just a few minutes ago she was trying to avoid all the same people she was now talking to. What has caused this change? Jesus must have done something not only to inform her of who he was, but to help her deal with who she was. To deliver her from her shame to the point that she could confidently march into town like this. What did he give her? And what did he give up in order to do it? Well, first of all, there are at least three reasons why Jesus would have to lower himself and spend significant social resources in order to talk to this woman. Three reasons. First of all, he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Second of all, he's a man. She's a woman. Third, he's a rabbi, and she's a pretty famous sinner. So it's for those three reasons altogether, it is shameful for him in this culture to even talk to her. What if someone were to find out? But look what he does. He not only talks to her, he doesn't talk down to her. Did you notice that? In fact, what does he do? He asks her for help. When he says, give me a drink, that's a way of asking that's in the translation. He's not ordering her around. He's asking her for a drink. Did you know that you confer dignity upon someone when you ask them for help? You do. Do you have a neighbor who is, is kind of shy and keeps to himself and struggles to get to know everybody on the street? Ask that person if you can borrow a tool or see if he can help you come over and move something heavy. Is there a kid in your social studies class who nobody talks to? Ask him if he can give you the pages for the reading assignment you forgot to write down instead of going to one of your friends. Then thank him when he helps you. These little things, they might cost you just a little bit of social capital, just a little bit of your dignity, but they might just bring somebody else a surprising amount of honor. But Jesus does more than just talk to her once, right? He gets into what, as far as I can tell, is the longest one-on-one discussion with another individual recorded in any of the Gospels. And even though he can't help pulling rank on her a little bit, he does. After all, he's the Messiah, right? But the tone that he takes with her is not condescending. He converses with her really as an equal. He doesn't pull punches. He doesn't take it easy on her. He calls her out for her sin, but he makes it clear there that he's still interested in continuing the conversation. He doesn't shy away when she gets a little bit prickly with him either. And when she takes a a deep theological issue and, and forms a question that may be a little bit off topic, he does her the courtesy of taking her seriously and answering her question. Is there someone who's lower than you on the social scale or maybe in the opinion of other people? If you want to confer honor on that person, try talking to them like an equal. Ask questions. Have some give and take. Take some time. Sit at their table. Take what they say seriously, even if it sounds a little bit off or different the first time you hear it. Incidentally, there's another way to help someone with their shame by treating them as an equal, and and this is something that not even Jesus can do, but you can do it. That sounds weird, right? But you can. And that's when you become aware of someone's sin specifically if they confess it to you in your presence. If that's something you have dealt with in your life, you can tell them. You can let them know you've struggled too with that very thing, assuming you have. People are sometimes freed from the shame of their sin and sometimes other types of shame too when they find out that they're not the only one who's gone through it and they're no longer off on guilt island by themselves. Again, that's going to cost you a little bit of your dignity, but it may help the other person a lot more. 
And then at the end of the conversation, Jesus does something incredible and really kind of unique if you think about it. He has done her the honor of breaking through social barriers to talk with her. He's done her the honor of engaging her in a very serious, straightforward, dignified conversation, but now he shares something with her, some information here that he doesn't trust to just anybody, but he trusts her. You know what? Sharing a secret with someone, trusting them with important information, confers dignity and honor upon that person. When she says, I know Messiah is coming, and he says, I who speak to you am he, you will look in vain anywhere in the Gospels to see Jesus declare his identity as Messiah as openly as he does here. That is, maybe until the last week of his life, and even then he wasn't that clear. Jesus made his own disciples figure that truth out, and when they did, he charged them not to tell anybody about it. But here, he entrusts this sinful and broken woman with this truth about him being the Messiah, and then he allows her to share it with the whole village. Now, I realize there may be other reasons for this. It's probably safer to reveal his identity here in Samaria than it would be in Jerusalem, but I want you to think about how this whole conversation would have elevated this woman. By the end of it, Jesus has not only told her about himself, he has lifted her out of her shame. And she doesn't have to hide from people anymore. Amazing. The power that we have to confer honor upon someone else. So let me just leave you with this question. Whom do you know in your life who could use a little bit of honor or maybe a lot? Is it within your power to honor this person in some way? If you do, it may cost you a little bit of your own dignity, at least in the short run, and I can almost guarantee you that just as Jesus was misunderstood when he lowered himself to connect with people that were caught in shame, people will misunderstand you too. But the positive impact on that person's life is likely to be a lot greater than the negative impact on your life. You know what Jesus Christ has done for you? Hebrews tells us that when Jesus faced the day of his death, he despised the shame. Was that shame real? Yeah. Did it hurt? Yes. But at the end of the day, Jesus despised it, which means he counted it as, as worth nothing compared to what the author of Hebrews then calls the joy that was set before him. You know what that was, the joy that was set before him? It was you. It was the chance to pull you out of your sin and shame so that his dad could adopt you into his family and you could become one of his brothers and sisters. Amen. Pretty amazing when you think about it. Let's pray.